0: So these lies that, that both parties were told, that adoptees were told, adoptive parents were told lies about the origins of their, their the children they were adopting. Birth parents were told lies about the destinations their sons and daughters were going to go to. And so many adoptees were also lied to.
1: Who
2: am
0: I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I?
2: Who am I? Who am I? This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to hear the story of David and his birth mother, Margaret. Their story of adoption, relinquishment, lives lived apart but close to one another, and their brief emotional reunion is told in the book American Baby, written by New York Times best-selling author Gabrielle Glasser. Gabrielle first met David while he was on kidney dialysis, awaiting a transplant where he shared that he hoped he would find his birth mother one day. In reunion, David learned that he had always been loved, and his birth parents never forgot about him. Gabrielle Shares David's Journey Gabrielle wrote one man's adoption story, weaving in some of the history of adoption in her most recent book, American Baby. But before we dove into the book, I wanted to know some of her own story. Gabrielle grew up on a small farm in Tangents outside of Portland, Oregon. Her paternal ancestors were Jewish immigrants who ended up being farmers back then. While she loved growing up in her small community, she wanted to see more of what the world had to offer. At Stanford University, she was exposed to history and was thinking of getting her advanced degree in Brazilian history. She even lived in Brazil as part of her study of the abolition of slavery in that country. When her master's thesis was complete, she found herself in Washington, D.C. at a going-away party for a New York Times Washington Bureau employee and who else did she sit next to than the bureau chief? When she explained her life's trajectory to become a professor of Brazilian history, he said,
0: "You don't have the personality of a professor. That's <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're not. That's not going to suit you." And I said, "What?" And not really took offense. How do you know? I just met you. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't.
2: I wasn't. Don't judge really,
0: me. <laughs> right? Don't judge me. I'm twenty-three. I know what I'm doing. And he said, why don't you come work for me for a year and see how you like it? And I did. And I never looked back. Wow! And for me, it just, it was a sliding door moment. It just was, it really was a moment that shifted my life forever. So I worked in the DC Bureau for about a year and a half and, I loved the adrenaline of it. The thing I loved the most was that I love talking to people. I love talking to people who are alive. And I was without even realizing, I think I was interviewing people at the table. There were some older folks there who had really interesting careers and I was just engaging. And that's when, and that's what he said about me. He said, you don't want to be spending your time in archives. You like to talk to people who are alive, not dead.
2: So, that cemented Gabrielle's new journey. She covered a wide breadth of topics that gave her the confidence to pursue a career in journalism, to write four books, and who knows what else is coming. It's a career she feels is an incredible privilege to have. I feel the same way. I'm a natural interviewer too, inquisitive about people's backstory, which is clearly how I came to be here for you, doing this. So... Gabrielle is not connected to adoption herself, but as someone who grew up at the end of the Baby Scoop era, she knew a lot of adoptees. The children of her parents' friends and some cousins of hers were adopted too. I asked her about some of her early experiences understanding adoption.
0: One thing that really stuck out to me was an experience where a boss of mine was trying to adopt a child privately. And I was maybe 14 or 15. I was wrapping presents in a jewelry store. And he and his wife had had a couple of private adoptions fall through. And the narrative behind that was, here was this, you know, girl in trouble who wasn't fit to take care of her children. And the language was so harsh and judgmental and just cruel that you know, she'd gotten herself in trouble and the child was going to be born out of wedlock. I mean, these ancient anachronistic words that w- we still use in su- in some cases. And there was so much blame involved. And and ultimately, I think they they did adopt, but there was this panic surrounding the finalization of the process. And there just was so much judgment levied, on this poor unnamed woman who didn't have, she didn't even have, she didn't have a face, she didn't have a, she had a body, but she, she was clearly, I think, on a very subconscious level, I began to understand that this was a a transaction, it was promoted as this beautiful thing that was, you know, the best of all possible outcomes, but The transactional nature of it with the lawyer involved and the lawyer coming to the shop and the lawyer coming to deliver news with a briefcase, it was very quietly dramatic. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. And and the way you described it in the beginning almost, it sounded as if you think of the story arc of like a great movie and there's like the hero, the villain and – it's it almost sounded like the natural mother was the villain or that she was some victim of the villain you know what i mean like and that these these adoptive parents were soon to be heroes is how it resonated in my mind as you described it and i could imagine probably oh. as you took it in as a teenager
0: absolutely she was definitely i mean that's the word i would use she was she was somehow characterized
2: as villainous
0: and but she had, until she signed the paper, she had all the control. And I know there was, you know, there was drama surrounding that too. So it's funny, I, I just some sort of you know, I know we, we discussed this yesterday, but I'm really just sort of it's sort of crystallizing in my mind about how that particular incident went down in the late 1980s.
2: Gabrielle had another story of experiencing adoption from the outside when she was a little older, living with a family outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil, in the late 1980s. The father was an olive-skinned Italian-Brazilian with super curly salt-and-pepper hair, dark eyes, and the kind of handsome guy you just might quintessentially picture when you think of an Italian guy. His wife, a tiny little woman with Lithuanian roots, had blue piercing eyes that she fixated on the news obsessively projecting from her television in the kitchen. The couple's daughter was around Gabrielle's age.
0: She was very tall and willowy. She had long sort of wavy brown hair and she had green eyes that were literally shamrock St. Patrick's Day decoration green and she towered above her parents, she had these just beautiful long legs and we would go out with her and her cousin, her cousin from her father's side, the Italian side she had confided to me that she suspected that she was adopted and I could see there was no question I understood that she, I want to say that I validated her thoughts, her belief about herself and she frequently asked her parents and they said no, no, no no, no, but when we would go out dancing and after a drink or two, she would refer to her green-eyed cousin as a communist bastard in Portuguese. And the woman would wince. And Mm -hmm. then I started to sort of put two and two together. The mother who obsessively watched the news and would call people, she would summon people in the household to come watch if there was a news event that she thought we needed to be aware of, except when there were images of the madres from the plaza de mayo in Argentina, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the grandmothers of the, the mothers of the disappeared who were searching for their grandchildren. So news would come on about the mothers in Argentina and she would really just become extremely upset, snap off the television and shut down. And it was impossible not to notice that there was something hovering over the exposure of that tragedy and how it related to that kitchen in that household with Mm. that family. Mm. There was definitely, there were strings there that were unspoken. It was like a veil of, wow, okay, there's something underneath this, Mm. but nobody's allowed to talk about it.
2: So that's an ever-so-brief history of Gabrielle Glasser. When her book, American Baby, came out, Our mutual friend Susanna, my former boss at HHS and quite the storyteller herself, texted me to say, you gotta talk to my friend Gabrielle. American Baby opens with an introduction to a man named David who would become a friend of Gabrielle's. She was a journalist in Portland in 2007, writing a feature about David, an adoptee, who was receiving a kidney donation from a friend. Since he was adopted, he didn't have a family member he could turn to for an organ donation who might be a match for his needs. Since his kidneys were in poor health, he needed dialysis. He spent several days a week, tethered for hours to the machines that cycled his blood out of his body, filtered it and cleaned it, then reinserted his cleansed blood. It's a noisy place where the life-saving process recurs daily to save kidney patients' lives. Gabrielle wasn't sure it was the right place for an interview, but David basically said, seriously, what else could I possibly be doing tied to these machines? You may as well come talk to me.
1: It's not a
0: happy place. It's not a, oh, yay, here I am at dialysis. Mm -hmm. So that, the tenor of the, the place itself was something striking. But I sat down and David talked to me. He was really gregarious, outgoing, funny just started asking me questions about myself, and I'm there to ask questions about him. Within about 20 minutes, he said, you know, I hope this story goes viral and that my birth mother sees it. And again, it was 2007. Facebook wasn't a big thing, but things had started to sort of email stories to one another, and... It, it was beyond stories were circulating beyond just what you saw on your own kitchen table on the physical newspaper.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I said, tell me more. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm adopted. That's why you're here. But my mother was a girl in trouble. He used those words. My mother was a girl in trouble in New York City in 1961. She was young when she had me. She was 17. And she gave me up. He, he used these words. She gave me up for adoption I even think he may have said she got knocked up, and but she I know she was Jewish because I was adopted through a Jewish agency, and she did want me to be placed with an Orthodox family, which she did. I was raised by beautiful, wonderful parents who who loved me and who I loved. But I'd like to know more medical information for my kids. And he lifted up his hand and sort of pointed at the, the these plastic tubes that were attached to his body and the story did go viral but only locally and inspired several other people to donate kidneys but his birth mother didn't see it
2: david's birth mother didn't see his story that was in 2007 in 2014 gabrielle had moved from oregon eventually settling in new jersey one day her phone rang and david's information showed up on her caller id When she answered the phone, David asked if she was sitting down.
0: I said, well, now I am. (laughs) And he said, I found my birth mother. She lives 45 minutes from you. And he paused and he said, she didn't want to give me up. And she's loved me all my life. So they met. His mother is this incredible, feisty, tenacious, loving a woman who had married his birth father, her name is Margaret Katz. She'd married his birth father, had three more children, including his youngest sister, who's an opera singer. So that was a real parallel, these two people with these vocal careers. Mm. And they were able to meet M- Margaret and her daughter Sherry came from, Sherry was living in Berlin where she was working as is opera singer, as I said, And the two of them went to Portland where they met the Rosenberg family, David, his wife, and his three children. And Margaret had three weeks in which to pour all of her 52 years of deferred love.
2: David was really sick at the time of their reunion. So Margaret and her daughter, David's younger sister, and a full-blood sibling flew out to meet David. During their visit, he mustered more strength than he had had in quite a while. They went everywhere together, like restaurants, where he introduced Margaret to the waiters as his birth mother and showed off his new sister.
0: They went to the Oregon coast and they went to arcades where David and Sherry played the same game that had been their father's favorite. And they recognized all these things they had in common, up to and including the fact that when... Margaret was pregnant with David and they were trying desperately to fight the concentric circles of their parents who didn't want them to keep the baby. And their religious community, which really frowned on premarital sex, let alone an unmarried mother. And finally, the the adoption system, which was really predatory in the years after the war and before Roe v. Wade. So, David was learning the backdrop of all these stories. But when they went to the arcade, he learned that his father, who had been a pitcher, and David was also an athlete, he was a hockey player, that the father, George, had used his pitcher's arm to win all of these household items toasters and blenders and pyrex dishes and silverware as teenagers that they could show to the social workers that they okay we may be just kids and we may be in a jam but we've got kitchen stuff we can keep our baby Mm -hmm. we're fighting our way out of this but that that didn't happen
2: back when david was born in new york archaic old wayward minor laws were still on the books Criminalizing all sorts of behaviors of young people, from vague stuff like vagrancy and being out too late, to disobeying your parents. Of course, within those laws were statutes for poor moral conduct, a euphemism for premarital sex and other morally reprehensible acts. When David was born in 1961, Margaret and George fought the uphill battle very hard to keep their son. They were planning their elopement and showed the social workers all kinds of kitchen items George had won to demonstrate they were going to be responsible parents. But the engine was running, and the adoption machine was in motion. When Margaret's mother signed her into the Louise Wise Services Maternity Home, the adoption agency had legal custody over her daughter, Margaret, and therefore, her baby. Margaret was still a minor at 17 years old. Still... She tried everything she could to fight the system.
0: But when David was five and a half months old, Margaret was corralled and isolated by a social worker. She and George had gone to visit the baby at a city office in downtown Manhattan. And they had come to bring him a rattle and a sweater that Margaret had knitted. But Margaret was separated from George, taken into a room, and once again presented with adoption papers. She'd been presented with them all along, including on the delivery room table. And she just pushed them away. But now the social worker finally said, if you don't sign these, we are going to put you in juvie. Your son is going to be adopted by a diplomat this week. You've got nothing to offer him. Sign now. And she was so ashamed. She had already shamed her parents with the pregnancy. She just had no way out. She was completely cornered. So she signed the documents and didn't see David for another 52 years.
2: Oh, my gosh. That is unreal. Wow. That's, oh, my gosh, what an emotional journey. And, I mean, having been through reunion, to hear what Margaret described to you, in terms of their journey is just absolutely fascinating. There's so much in there. It's unreal. But to, let's stay with David for a minute. So David calls you and he says he's met his biological mother. And mm-hmm. he has, they've gone around. They've they've basically, they did what I did with my mom. We dated, right? Like we were constantly mm-hmm. trying to see each other and Hi. get to know each other. You know what I mean? It's, it's it, There's no... It's not a romantic love. It's a holy crap, I can't believe we're reconnecting love. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they're on this journey of sort of reconnecting, but I heard you say they only had three weeks. Tell me a little bit about what happens next.
0: So part of the, the adoption experience that Margaret was enduring during the separation, Margaret had the one thing she felt she could do as a mother was to obsessively indefatigably send louise wise services word about the diseases that had what were that releasing through the family tree and come to find out the agency had never passed those messages on mm. and david had not only gotten diabetes he'd gotten gout as a young man he had a host of other illnesses some of which were hereditary and he had been diagnosed with a very lethal form of thyroid cancer and w- was passing so the the reunion was short and very very bittersweet because david died 3 months after he and margaret were able to reunite hmm.
2: yeah that is so sad and you know it's having done many of these interviews I've spoken with gangs of people and I focus on adoptees and it's usually well, clearly I can't interview a deceased adoptee. So this is going to sound weird, Mm -hmm. but it's usually the adoptee who's saying I met this person and I just barely got to know them, and then they passed. Or I just missed them because they passed, you know, the week, the month, the year before I located them. So to Mm -hmm. hear Margaret's pain of losing her son again after
1: mm-hmm.
2: he finds her, I mean, that had to be absolutely heart-wrenching for her. Absolutely terrible. My gosh.
1: Yeah,
0: and exactly as you say, she lost her son and found him and lost him again. So it's been an extremely complicated journey. She didn't talk about David's existence with anybody except only briefly and occasionally with George, who just really had the attitude of what's done is done. We have to accept it. We have to move on. We have a beautiful family that we've created, and we have to count our blessings. And he, too, died of diabetes when he was 56 years old. He died of of kidney failure, waiting for a kidney. So Margaret had kept the secret. Inside for so long, and meeting her son was a revelation. Knowing that he'd had a good life, knowing that he'd had parents who loved him, that he'd had many advantages, that he was had a beautiful family that he'd created. Margaret is a very spiritual woman, so for her, this is this is a, a it's a relief. And a blessing, but of course there's sadness and, and, and anger and bitterness for how she was treated. She was shunted off to a maternity home on Staten Island where she had to live out her pregnancy in shame and secret. All of her mail was read, whether it was incoming or outgoing. Journal entries of the girls were were read. You know, this is all that classic baby scoop era stuff that mostly as as you you know mostly affected white women. Yeah. And she I think she internalized the shame of it, but at the same time, her son was created in love. And she couldn't really ever understand that was such a you know that she couldn't understand what was being put on her. Yeah, she'd had sex before she got married so what more than half of Americans had had premarital sex Mm -hmm. and still in her case and in the case of so many women it was all of the blame all of the responsibility so much of the pain was put on them was heaped on them and she did carry that with her for so long
2: gosh I can't even imagine I try to be empathetic to the natural mothers out there because of great majority of them got pregnant unintentionally are thrown into situations where they are stripped of any empowerment to make decision and uh, as you've alluded to thrown into a a process a system a a machine that is designed to redistribute children to other people. I couldn't help but think about that. As you were talking about the fact that David's information about his biology was not transitioned from Margaret through Louise Wise to the adoptive parents, it occurred to me as you were speaking that, yeah, they're not going to give you information that the product is damaged. You know what I'm saying? They want to create the perception that the child is, for lack of better words, as flawless as possible and so, you know, bringing this beautiful baby to a couple, letting them fall in love and then documenting for them, you know, the cadre of chronic diseases and other ailments that are going to befall this child potentially in its older life, you know, it it's not – it doesn't create the best sales picture for when you're trying to get someone to adopt a child. And it just – I've never really spoken very harshly of – adoption as a system, but I can feel my irritation with the the productization of the babies in this systemized process. And what you've said about his process really underscores that for me.
0: I really fascinated on that comment that you said. You're not they're not going to present the baby as damaged goods. And in fact, you know, part of the whole baby scoop era ethos And with many of these large agencies, and particularly with Louise Wise, they promoted and marketed themselves as being able to give people the best babies.
2: Gabrielle told me there was a whole matching process that tested the children to try to match them as best as possible to their new potential parents. But these tests on newborn infants weren't based on any sound science, and were actually rather barbaric.
0: Behind the scenes, they had a whole matching process that tested the children, that examined them, that really wanted to. They they had this harebrained idea. It's I mean it's shocking. I've been sort of immersed in this material now for about two and a half years, what I'm about to tell you. Mm -hmm. And it's so shocking to me. It it hurts me still to my bones. I'm a mother. I have three daughters. I love babies. Who doesn't love babies? But Louise Wise in an effort to offer what in the archives of the agency referred to as Blue Ribbon Babies had a series of experiments including one that uh, it's it, it, what it did there was a pediatrician on board his name was Samuel Karolitz, and he had this idea the babies who were the smartest were the ones who cried the most well how do you measure the cries of a baby how do you measure the intelligence of a 10 minute old baby Well, Carolitz came up with this Experiment that used a gigantic rubber band gun to shoot really thick elastic bands, the kind that you would have around a big pile of mail. You know, those grubby ones, they're sort of thick.
1: And mm-hmm.
0: so, and, and the rubber band gun stretched to three times its, its regular size was aimed at a baby's foot. Again, a baby who was 10 minutes old and researchers snapped that rubber band against the sole of the baby's foot and measured its cries. And if it didn't cry for 60 seconds the first time, they would continue for as many as seven attempts with this snap. And if the baby didn't cry enough, then the researcher would scratch the baby's foot and thump the baby's foot. And these studies were funded by the U.S. government and they were embraced by people in the popular press. There was a pop psychologist whose name was Dr. Joyce Brothers and she wrote about this in her newspaper column Mm -hmm. saying this is a really great tool for adoptive parents to understand if they are going to get a smart baby. And by the way, mothers out there, if you've got Um, a colicky kid, don't worry, it means he's going to be smarter. Wow. So, to, to your point that this was a business, Damon, you're absolutely right because, you know, in the baby scoop era, so the years between 1946 and 1972, roughly, the rate of unwed motherhood more than tripled, but there was a middle class to aspire to, And it was not accepted. Single motherhood was not yet accepted among white women. Black families oftentimes had a very different attitude if their daughters got pregnant, as you know. Many did not want to see family separation go on another time. But for middle-class white girls, the babies of these girls were a product And the mothers were the means of production. And for families who were trying to conceive children and and couldn't in an era of fetishization of the nuclear family, the only way they could get a child was to turn to adoption agencies or to private attorneys. Mm -hmm. And they, too, were, were caught in this web of what, in the decades after the war seemed to me like an adoption industrial complex
2: yeah 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 it's unreal (sighs) it's frustrating to think back on but as george would have said what's done is done and all we can do is try to make change on the current process and there's still a lot of unfortunate practices that are out there you know i've interviewed guests who believe that their mother was coerced out of her baby from an international operation, you know, and I just saw a story the other day mm-hmm. about an international operation in Africa where mothers are being coerced out of their infants, and the, the children are, you know productized and, and pushed out into other, alternative families. I was really curious as to what triggered Gabrielle to write "American Baby." What was it about David? Was there something about Margaret's journey? Why did Gabrielle, an author who's not adopted, feel so drawn to pour herself into the work of bringing their adoption story forward?
0: When David called and said, I found my birth mother and she didn't want to give me up. She's loved me all my life. I could just hear in his voice how healing that knowledge was for him how healing it must have been for her and how healing it was for me as a human being to hear it Mm -hmm. to have that belief about yourself completely reversed that you weren't loved that you weren't wanted i know many adoptees when they don't know their origin stories grow up with the belief even though they're loved and cherished by their adoptive families and told, we're so lucky because we have you and we, we chose you. Many adoptees believe, even if they don't vocalize this, well, what was wrong with me that my birth mother, that my natural mother didn't choose me? Mm-hmm. So in that instant of, of locating his mother and learning the story of how she had tried everything she could to, to thwart the adoption. It, it changed his narrative. And that to me was just a, a remarkable human story of, of love, of loss, of separation, of the search for self. David also told me about the process and he, he told me, and he, I, I, these aren't his exact words, but he, I, I said, well, what do you want me to do? Well, when he said, well, You know what to do. You know what happened with the kidney story. Try to make sure that this doesn't happen to other people. So I used this micro story of these two people who had been separated to tell a macro story of what happened in the United States at the time with closed secretive adoptions. And I didn't understand the legal Structure that that existed in place to have kept them separated for all those years.
2: Gabrielle's research revealed the history dating back to the 1930s when adoption became more popular and more profitable. Baby theft and baby selling increased, and protections for the baby thieves themselves required covering the tracks of the thieves. Many states enacted laws that made adoptions very secretive transactions sealing birth certificates, amending birth certificates, and erasing the adoptee's true identity. The whole enterprise put a wall between a person's original identity and their adopted self. Of course, the measures were viewed as protections to help the child feel legitimized and de-identify the newly formed family from interference. Many advocates have fought for years for some states to overturn closed adoption laws and to make open access to original birth certificates, or OBCs, available for adopted people. Still, many states remain closed.
0: I became, I became outraged by the human and civil rights violation that this presents. First, I was intrigued by the incredible narrative of David And his mother, Margaret, and their twin stories, which were spellbinding and had so many twists and turns of almost meeting, almost being in the same place at the same time. David, as a hockey player, was recruited by the Rangers. George Katz's favorite sports team was the Rangers. He was an obsessive fan and wore a Rangers jersey around his house. Wow. Margaret had been led to believe that David was, as I said, going to be raised by diplomats. And she always envisioned that he was being raised in Italy or Spain or had some, you know, wonderful existence being raised in a fancy embassy with marble steps. And he was adopted by this beautiful couple, as I said. But they were Holocaust survivors who lived 10 blocks from Margaret and George in the Bronx, they were not diplomats. So these lies that, that both parties were told, that adoptees were told, adoptive parents were told lies about the origins of their, their the children they were adopting. Birth parents were told lies about the destinations their sons and daughters are going to go to. And so many adoptees were also lied to. So putting those all of those elements together against the structure of the laws the socio economic factors the religious institutions the politicians the the social mores that still so often persist among among young single mothers mm-hmm. It really, trying to put that all into historical context was the honor and privilege of a lifetime. It was gut-wrenching and it was a lot of work, but it was really to sort of swoop above and give a hawk's eye version and then come down really close and be really down into the granular detail of Margaret's life, David's life, in as much as I could report it from... You know, obviously he's, he's passed. But t- weaving that into the larger narrative that we had as a country that, through, you know, an estimated 3.5 million young women who got pregnant in the decades after the war forgot about their babies. They went on to have, quote unquote, children of their own and everything worked out just fine. It was really a story I wanted to hold up to the light.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I mean, there's so much mm, false information. I was just sort of recounting everything as you were speaking of where, you know, these brokers in the middle are selling these babies to be this picture of perfection. They're selling these mothers (laughs) on the idea that one, they're not good enough to present the best life possible for these children. And that the parents that these folks, these kids are going to go to are going to be the cream of the crop, best of the best. Like these parents are better than your parents and in your life. And the the child is going to grow up in the fantasy world that you probably wish, you know, that you were going to have as a kid, the, the diplomats, the doctors, the Hollywood or professional athletes, like this sales pitch to make you feel like Oh well the the child is going somewhere awesome. And you know, while the parents probably are awesome, it's not this fantasy picture that these folks have painted in the in the sales pitch. It's really just fascinating. I'm gonna I'm to ask you something along these lines, because I can hear it, but I want I wanna hear what you say. Adoptees frequently express this feeling of coming out of the fog. Right? We have many of us have lived a good life and we're very fortunate and thankful for the things that we experienced. Some people, as we all know, have not had the best experiences in adoption. Uh, Either way, there's a moment where you realize that you are adopted. You are a child who was originated in one family and transplanted to another family. And I want to find these other people. And adoption means something different to me than the popular narrative of a rescue or, you know, whatever the sort of thing is you have in your mind. And it's this coming out of the fog is what the term is that just generally means like this open realization of what adoption actually means versus the, the rosy narrative that's painted. Did you have, even though you're not an adoptee sort of a coming out of the fog moment of realizing like, Oh, adoption is actually way different than I thought it was.
0: Mhm. I I did and I definitely had that with really learning. I couldn't learn from David because he's no longer with us and he was so again I just want to emphasize he loved his adopted parents so much and he didn't really have the opportunity because of his his death so quickly after he met Margaret and Sherry. I don't I don't know if I think his fog moment, his coming out of the fog was she didn't want to give me up. She loved me all my life. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was also part of my fog. And I, I just, you know, I mentioned this to you also yesterday. I, I became interested in adoption as a reporter when I saw a flyer in my Portland coffee shop that had I, I used to get good story ideas from those flyers. Again, this was before this was before social media. Yeah. So remember those coffee shop flyers? Right. Like you could see all sorts of cool things there. Really, like a town square, here's a bunch of cool stuff yeah. that's happening in your neighborhood. Huh, yeah. And I happened to be looking at the, at the board, this cork board, and I saw this horrifying image of it was on a white piece of paper, just white regular printer paper with some drawings of stick figures that were filled in with highlighter yellow. And they had jet black straight hair and mouths that were really sort of vocalizing vocalizing unhappiness and mm-hmm. slanted eyes. And I thought, oh, what is this? This is so racist in Portland, Oregon. Are you kidding me? And then I looked up at the words above the images, which were arresting. And it said, are you an angry Korean-American adoptee? So are we. Call this number. So I tore off the paper. I called the number, and I did a newspaper story about Korean-American adoptees who had been adopted through the whole agency that is based in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And I learned from them very quickly about the rescue narrative that you describe, especially for international adoptees. You were going to be in an orphanage otherwise, and we got you, and we raised you. And I know specifically in the case of one woman, she said, I was raised to believe, she was raised in a military family, and she was raised to believe that she was a Smith. That was her last name. There's nothing unlike you, it, it, you know, you're just like us. You, you're exactly like your brothers and sisters. They went on to have biological children, as sometimes happens. And yet, she would be at a bus stop waiting for the school bus in a, a racist southern town, even if she, even that she was on a, you know, even when she was on a military base. She said it was better when she was on military bases because they're far more integrated. But when her dad had left the military, she was on her own and she said she'd be at the school bus where people would make fun of her. They would call out her skin color. They would, you know, taunt her with all sorts of epithets. And she really educated me in that instant to this is what adoption means for a lot of people. And it's definitely what it means for a lot of people who were deracinated from their birth culture, not only from their birth families, but from the smells that they smelled for the first year of their lives, the food, the language, people who look like you. So when I wrote that story, I think it appeared in print in 2003. And I didn't even write the story. I just let each, there were sort of chunks of each adoptee. I think I had three or four and it was just in their own words, portraits of each of them and in their own words on the front page of the Sunday feature section at the time. And that evening I checked my email. It was before texting, it was before Twitter. That evening I checked my email, and I was inundated with angry emails from adoptive parents who said, how dare you? How dare you write about this? These people are ungrateful I can't believe you wasted ink like this. And there were so many threats to uh, cancel subscriptions. My editor and I immediately understood that we were onto something that had touched a nerve. Mm-hmm. And he was a half Japanese, half black man who was a war baby who'd grown up on a U.S. basis in Japan, but had grown up with just absolute racism and and feeling not accepted by both sides of his family and we really started pursuing that topic as the topic of adoption and looking at it bringing it up to the light as I said so I would say that story for me and meeting those folks that was my out of the fog moment Mm. and just learning the basics of Oh, oh, wow, this rescue did not feel like such a rescue to me. It felt like, who am I?
2: In my opinion, Gabrielle did a masterful job of telling the story of an adoptee who's no longer with us. She brought into vivid focus scenes from his life, facts from his travels. And she did the same for Margaret's life, sharing intimate details of her journey and her emotions along the way during the decades they spent apart. I was curious to know more about her process for gathering the facts from the family story.
0: David was such a gregarious guy. He had so many people who loved him that in many ways, once I put the word to the community that I was writing this book, that really is really sort of described it as a biography of an adoption, not a biography of either David or... Margaret, but a biography of their, you know, their lives and their narrative, but also what happened to them. But once I put the word out among David's community in Toronto, which he would left when he was about 20 years old, in, as part of his search for identity, he he went to Israel and he made Aliyah, which is the process of becoming an Israeli citizen. If you were a Jew, every Jewish person has the right to return to the state of Israel and become an Israeli citizen. So he had a vast and loving community there of people who remembered him so clearly. And honestly, even though it was a challenge to try, it was a challenge to try to put together, all right, well, what was he thinking? I was able to supplement what he was thinking with his own words because he wrote, Letters to people. I relied on those. I relied on interviews of people who remembered him, as I said. And really, most magically, one of his friends from Toronto, where he left when he was twenty, was an Orthodox rabbi in Brooklyn, who I found out. Somebody said I was talking to all of his friends, you know, by telephone from Toronto, and. They said, oh, you really need to call Rabbi David Burke. He lives in Brooklyn. And I'm in New Jersey. That's not far. My I have daughter who lives in Brooklyn. No no problem. So I, I sent him an email. He writes back instantly <laughs> and said, of course I remember David Rosenberg. I'd be happy to talk to you. So he remembered these instances. As this, guy, this guy is like an angel, this man. Mm-hmm. And he had these incredible memories of what it was like when David's father died and the stupid things he said to him, which he said, oh, I know just how you feel. My grandfather died a couple of years ago, and David looked at him like, no, you don't. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. You're not adopted, and your father didn't die. So Anyway, but Rabbi Burke had had in safekeeping an autobiography that David had written as a young college student, and David had given it to, to Rabbi Burke who was not yet a rabbi in, I don't know, 1981, and said, "Here, just keep this for me, uh, you know, for when I come back from Israel, if I ever come back from Israel." Oh, wow. And all those years later, all, almost 40 years later, Rabbi Burke gave that document to me in 2019 at a kosher coffee shop deep in Brooklyn. He walks in, he's carrying a satchel, and he said, "Here, I thought this is something you might be interested in." Oh my God! And it was. David's feelings about his childhood, about his difficult adolescence, about his anger outbursts, about lots of things that bubbling beneath them was adoption was right there in black and white.
1: Mm.
0: I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So those were things that I relied on. I also. I looked into a lot of the literature about the adoptee experience. And to be honest with you, there's just not, there's Eric Erickson. I'm sure you probably know about that. The search for self and the identity that adolescents go through, but particularly how challenging that is for adoptees.
2: Did you, I'm wondering, did you get to sit with Margaret and ask her her story too?
0: Oh, my goodness. So that 45 minutes between Margaret's house and mine is exactly 45 minutes. And I've probably made it, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And Margaret's memory for the events surrounding this coerced adoption was so, uh, so deeply burnished within her, it began pouring out in full paragraphs everything that she had experienced, what she was wearing. She has a photographic memory. Let's start with that. So she has a photographic memory. Mm -hmm. And she can remember, oh, yeah, I was wearing a green plaid pantsuit when (laughs) I met George for the first time. Uh And her, I mean, she is really something because – in order to recreate her story and just make sure her details were right, we, we often would go to the places where she had been. So we took a trip back to the maternity home on Staten Island. Wow. And the way she had described it, it's this big old Italianate building, former mansion that had been repurposed to house dozens of girls at once. And the way she had described it was absolutely, I'd seen pictures of it online. But she described the internal stairwells and the living room and what the living room looked over. I'd only seen pictures of the outside of it. And she also described the kitchen, exactly the size and shape. I mean, you name it, the details were, she just had them. She unfurled them. I took them down. When we visited that place in, probably it was five years ago, on a hot summer day, it's now a home for children who are awaiting foster care homes every single detail of what she had said was just spot on down to the, the texture of the wood on the stairwell. I mean, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. So that was, and she also has a ton of documents and documentation. You probably know this, but oftentimes birth parents keep all sorts of things. If there's been a traumatic adoption, they, they keep all sorts of, Papers and photographs and report cards from their... other. I mean, there's Margaret has everything in in her house that documents her life as a mother, that documents her life as the daughter of immigrants. The only thing that was missing was David.
2: Mm-hmm. How was it to go back to that building with her? Did, I, it's not the kind of place that you sort of take an annual pilgrimage to to remember the good old days. Did she, I have to assume she probably left that place and never wanted to go back. And so you're back there with her. How was it for her to go back to the home where she had spent the days prior to giving David up?
0: I went with her and her daughter, Sherry. It was a hot summer day, and the director of the home was just so gracious and understood exactly what had transpired there for so many women and a lot of women she said a lot of women were curious and had come back but they came back and stayed for five minutes and left Mm -hmm. margaret came back and we were easily there for two hours and for her i think it was i don't want to say healing i expected her to be really upset and traumatized by it and to be you know visibly shaken
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and she was just completely solid. She was asking questions of the director. We sat down and had a meeting, and she went through some of her experiences, and she would point out, okay, well, yeah, this is where Linda lived, and this is where Susan lived, and and the girls were told to not ever divulge their circumstances, their their real names. They were, they were instructed to use pseudonyms, but Margaret didn't do any of that because she, she thought she was going to be able to keep her baby. She thought she could somehow you know stand up to the system so I expected as I said I expected her to be really shaken But she was really solid and and was very curious and worried about the you know the destinations of the, of the kids who were there they were outside playing and I recall her saying I'm so happy to see that they look like they're having fun but where are they going mm-hmm. who is going to parent them so it was it was an interesting bookend to see a woman who was by that point in her early 70s looking out on those teenagers. And I wondered what she thought about, okay, those young folks don't have homes or or families that can take care of them at the moment. What must that like to see them at the same age where you were roughly 50 some odd years ago. Right. And she said, I'm not really connecting to that at the moment. I'm, I'm just more concerned about them. And, and then we went to lunch and she, luckily her daughter was with her and she was, she was, like I said, she's just was really solid. I, and I expected her to be, more traumatized by the experience but mm-hmm. she i think for her maybe it was i don't want to say it was healing but it was
2: it sounds like i, it, I don't think, pl- like this plug the right plug the hole is not the right expression but like it's almost like if you're missing puzzle pieces
0: exactly yeah. i was just gonna say that yeah. exactly it was like oh okay yeah i was here this is what what it was like and it's like when you see a picture of an event that you remember you remember it in your head and then you run across the picture
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and it absolutely is exactly like you remembered it it's proof that the event was exactly you know what how you thought it was that's what it felt like
2: Gabrielle is a journalist and a best-selling author with four books to her name Her experiences reporting and writing the stories of others is a skill set unlike any I had interviewed before. I told Gabrielle there are so many adoptee stories out in the world with striking similarities and stark contrasts to David and Margaret's. I asked her for some advice for any future authors out there who want to write their book chronicling the story of their own life. I asked her for suggestions for where to start. What to do if you're stuck, or if you just don't think you're a good writer? Oh,
0: I'm so glad you asked that question, because I'm getting a lot of requests from adoptees who say, what do I do? The story of an adoptee is, of course, special to an adoptee, but not all of them are the same. Everybody has their own tale. And the story, again, it's like what you asked me early on about the story is a story of love and loss and separation and the search for self. And that journey that an adoptee has, first as a, as a young person who makes the journey from his original self to his adopted self, and then when he's able to reconnect, if he is able to reconnect with his or her birth family, that's another journey. That is a really, that's the that's that's great literature right there so i would not suggest i would suggest looking at great literature and not just adopting memoirs and looking at who who tells memoirs in a way that really resonate with me what do i like how do i become a better writer I think you become a better writer. I know you become a better writer by reading more and mm-hmm. focus back on who you like. What kind of voice do you like? It doesn't have to be an adopting voice. It can be a person voice because this is a human experience and that's what we like to read about. That's what draws us in. That's a narrative that compels us. So who tells a story that you like?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I happen to love Joan Didion. And she's an adopted mother, by the way, but I am from the West Coast and I love her arid prose and she never overdoes it. She's never purple with her, her words. She's just stripped down and the lines, the descriptive scenes are just fabulous. I'm going to give a plug to a former editor of mine who is a brilliant guy one of the best most gifted narrative editors in the country his name is Jack Hart and he has a book called Storycraft which really is a is a how to for how to create a narrative arc hmm. how to develop it how to follow it through what are the elements you need and it, it, it's a really wonderful tool so i would definitely suggest that and you know in this era of so much content that we're able to view, able to watch, think about a movie that you liked, something that had, that really, you know, made you feel something, you know, a dramatic piece. Yeah. And so often those movies were books first. Yeah, so yeah. think about the elements that made you feel what you felt in the movie, what made you, you know, laugh or cry or walk out feeling like you belonged to the wider world of of humanity and see if there's not a book that it was drawn from first.
2: That's so that's what call. I try to do. Yeah.
0: That's what I try to do.
2: Would I, I recommend to folks, so I've written my own memoir and I'm working on a second piece right now. And what I recommend to folks is, one, just start. Write something down, right? Mm -hmm, right. And, And focus on something that's important to you. It could be your earliest memory of how you were different from your family. It could be your earliest realization that there was another set of parents out there. It could be just a fond memory. It could be your most angry memory. But just write Mm -hmm. something down and then build off of that if you were angry Mm -hmm. what did you do after and if you were Mm -hmm. angry what happened before that triggered that anger and now instead of just having that one piece you've got three pieces the lead up the anger and the thereafter and then you can build on that right where did that take you if you were if you had this moment of elation and then but you had this open realization like this means there's another set of parents out there. What did you do? Did you go online? Did you push it aside? Write about that. And then the pieces mm-hmm. will start to come together, right? You mm-hmm. can you can go right. backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And the story, it, to my mind, will will build itself out because once you start, ideas will pop into your head and you'll be driving down the road, you'll be in the shower, you'll be in a meeting and things will come and you'll think, oh, I should write that part about Uncle Joe. Or, oh, I should write Mm -hmm. that piece where my sister said X. Mm -hmm. Oh, I remember Mm -hmm. that time Mm -hmm. my mom shut me down in the following way. Scribble a note down and put it into the piece you've already started in the order that it happened, right? So if your mom Mm -hmm. shut you down with a comment before you got angry, put it on that side and vice versa. So I try to help people to break down the pieces of their story and just jot down components of it and then flesh it out around that and then go back and add in the details right the it was a gorgeous sunny day when this anger came over me or it was a dark stormy you know winter whatever when i found my mother's picture online like then go back and throw in all of the color and your book mm-hmm. will start to come together in my mind i also like too what you said about modeling after other works that you've done that's what i did with the podcast is Mm -hmm. I sat down. I was already listening to a gang of podcasts and I said, all right, how do I want my podcast format to go? And I listened to Guy Raz, How I Built This. And I modeled my work after someone else's. And I like what you've said about taking that same approach to your literary work, find things that you've read that you liked and find resources like what was your editor's book called again?
0: Storycraft Storycraft. by Jack
2: Hart. There you go. Storycraft Mm -hmm. by Jack Hart and model your work after the template that someone else has provided, and you'll be in great shape. So wow. Well, American Baby, I'm really, really excited to finish it, Gabrielle. It's going to take me a while because as you've heard, I'm pretty busy writing and doing the podcast. Yes, exactly. But I'm excited to get through it and I'm looking forward to sort of learning what it is that you learned along the way. Maybe you can just share one more quick thing with me. What do you want readers to take away from American Baby?
0: I want readers to know that this adoption system existed in this country that was happening in plain sight. These forced separations that we look at today – At the border, for example, we we'd like to think in some regards that, oh, well, this is just a new horrible relic of the Trump administration. But in fact, we we have a long history of doing a lot of really, really toward things to a lot of people Mm -hmm. inhumane. Thank you. And this year, especially as we examine the systemic racism of our country, the legacy of slavery, police brutality, there is there's a, a through line from history to today, and we can't understand it unless we look at it. And the more we look, even though it's hard sometimes, it's painful, it's not fun, It's really what we have to do to become more complete human beings, to develop more compassion for each other.
2: Yeah. A lot of hard work to be done, but it has to be done. I agree. Wow. Well, I really appreciate you taking time with me today, Gabrielle. This has been amazing, as I hoped it would be. And I'm so excited for you and your book. I've seen it's gotten some really great reviews. I'm hopeful that the adoptee community will take it in learn something new and I think probably almost as importantly learn about David who's not here to tell his own story and I think it's an incredible thing that you've done to take your passion your incredible gift for words and storytelling research and, and weaving a person's background together to create this book and, and I'm sure if he was here, he would be so proud of the work that you've done. So thank you for telling One Adoptee's Story. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Damon. It was wonderful to get to know you.
2: You too. Take care. All the best to you, okay?
0: Okay. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.
2: Hey, it's me. It was really wonderful to speak with Gabrielle and learn more about her insights into adoption. She's an author who got the privilege and honor to tell one family story of love, conception, birth, coercion, relinquishment, regret, curiosity, searches for identity, and investigations into where loved ones could be in the world. You can learn more about Gabrielle Glasser on her website, GabrielleGlasser.com. Her book, American Baby, is available wherever you buy books. When you read it, I hope you'll find something in David's story that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com/waireally or follow on Twitter at waireally. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com/waireally. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast, too. And if you're interested, you can check out the story of my adoption journey. Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com, on Kindle, or as an audiobook on Audible. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.